Hey y'all, and welcome to a special season of Abolitionist Lent Bible Study. This Lenten season, we are continuing um, what we did in Advent to invite people across traditions and mediums to explore themes of revelation, disruption, examination, and embodiment in ways that will support a larger faith movement, reimagining restorative solutions to community safety, health, and wellness. Uh, we want to name that abolition means not just the closing of prisons and ending of policing, but putting in place vital systems of support that many communities are systematically disenfranchised from. Abolitionist Lent is an ongoing collaboration between three organizations and some thought partners, including uh, Fellowship of Reconciliation, More Light, and the Presbyterian Peace Fellowship, and additional folks, including Reverend Lindsay Anderson, Miles Markham, Minister Candace Simpson, and Reverend Ananda Barclay. So please join us throughout the Lenten season as we define explore, reflect, and take action to further the inbreaking of abolition into this world. Today, I am really excited to be exploring Genesis 17, verses 1 through 7 and 15, 16, through the theme of naming with Daniel Williams, who is both a More Light board member and this month's virtual pulpit supply preacher. So he will be bringing us a word to share a pre-recorded sermon for churches that would like to use that in their worship. So Jess will add some links to that if you'd like to learn more and sign up. But before we dive into our text, I'd like to take a minute to further introduce ourselves with our name, our pronouns, our work, and our identities, because we know whether we're envisioning abolition or encountering the biblical text, our identities come with us in those conversations. So Daniel, would you be willing to kick us off? Of course. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. Uh, my name is Daniel Williams. My pronouns are he, him, his. I am the Minister for Spiritual Formation at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church. We're a progressive, inclusive church in Austin, Texas. We are a more light church and have been for a long time, longer than I know. Um, I am a white, cisgender, queer man. Um, I'm not originally from Texas, but I have been here for eight-ish years. Um, I am engaged. I am the father of a cat named Pancake. I live on stolen land um, that we call Texas. And I think, you know, thinking about naming, it's interesting to think about choosing that name for this land. Um, I'm a knitter and a spinner and a weaver. I think those are some of my identities today. Yes. And Underlining pets with food names is my favorite way to name pets. I currently don't have any of those kinds, but all my are named after 90s TV show characters. Um, so maybe that's the second category. Um, hey everybody, I'm Alex Patchen McNeil. My pronouns are he and him. I uh, serve as executive director at More Light Presbyterians and identify as a white, transgender, queer human. Um, using male pronouns and embodying masculinity in the world. And I'm a partner and a new uncle, my favorite new identity. Um, and uh, I, I am a parent of three rambunctious dogs who sometimes come to you know bark at me in the middle of this episode. Um, but I also live on stolen land um, in the land of Cherokee, which also have another name um, that you know, many names uh, to embody who they were and are in this world. 
um, in, out here in the mountains of North Carolina. So I'm thrilled to, to pick up this story of Genesis, um, an often told one, but one I think we're gonna get to explore really deeply. Um, and so we will begin our abolitionist Bible study where we'll read it through three times and we'll ask different questions as we read to help guide our thinking. And Daniel, I would be honored if you'd be willing to read for us for the first time. Of course, so this is um, from Genesis and this is from the Inclusive Language Bible. When Abram was 90 years old, the Holy One appeared and said, I am the breasted one. Walk in my presence and be blameless. I will make a covenant between you and me and I will increase your numbers exceedingly. Abram fell on his face before God and God said to him, this is my covenant with you. You will be the ancestor of many nations. You, will, you are no longer to be called Abram, respected parent, but Abraham, progenitor of a multitude, for you are the progenitor of a multitude of nations. I will make you most fruitful and I will make nations of you and rulers will spring from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come. I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. God continued, as for Sarai, her name will now be Sarah, noble woman. I will bless her and I will give you a child by her. I will bless her and she will become nations. Rulers of peoples will come from her. Amen. I'm curious in the first reading, what stood out to you? I, um, you know, when, I, when you think about this text, you think about God renaming Abraham and Sarah and God making the promise of a multitude of nations. I had forgotten that another part of that promise is that rulers will come forth in the line, um, which just seems sort of obvious. Like if you're gonna be the, the source of all these people, like if there is gonna be a governance structure, the people involved in that governance structure will also come from it. Maybe that's not obvious, colonialism. Um, right. But um, yeah, that was, that was just something I hadn't, hadn't remembered about this text that both Abraham and Sarah are, are gonna be the, the rulers, are, are gonna be the parents of the rulers of the nations. And I also really liked the language at the end about Sarah, she will become nations. I don't know if that's a trans, I don't know what goes into that translation choice here by the inclusive Bible. I'll be curious to see if you read another translation, how they do it. But like, I like this idea of Sarah, not just being the progenitor of the nations, but becoming nations and that we embody our ancestors and that our, our ancestors, you know, we, we really carry them and they have become us and we will become our descendants. That's sort of a lovely. Yeah. Yeah. That over and over again, God teaches us that it, it takes two to covenant yeah. and that here it also takes, it also includes uh, Sarah as part of that covenant that, um, that she obviously can't be late, left out if Abraham, Abraham is to be the progenitor um, and, and kind of expanding that relationship, but to also give her a place within that 
um, lineage is really powerful. Yeah, like become nations really struck me as well. Um, the, the other thing that stood out to me, which we started talking about a little before we went live, is the name of God um, at the very beginning, the breasted one. And uh, Daniel, you shared with me a little bit of, of that uh, translation and choice. And I'd be curious if you could share it with us now, because it's, I think has some really interesting implications, even for in the theme of naming, this name for God is not one I'd heard before. Yeah, yeah, great. So as I said, this is the Inclusive Language Bible uh, compiled by Priests for Equality, which is a group of Catholic priests. And they make a lot of choices in their translation um, that are unfamiliar to those of us who like, like I grew up with all NRSD all the time. Like um, we often like are a little bit low keyer about it than the KJV only people. But I think a lot of Presbyterians sort of functionally fall into an NRSD only position. Um, but don't want to admit it. And so um, the word here in Hebrew is, is El Shaddai. And that's almost always, if you look at an English translation, is always going to be translated as the Almighty or the Mighty or the um, some, really something along those lines. But the etymology in Hebrew seems to be unclear. And that, so this is a note in this Bible translation is that it's usually assumed to derive from the word shadad, which means burly or powerful, or from shadah, which means mountain. So you sometimes also see it god of the mountains. Mm -hmm. But that there's also a possibility and a growing opinion that it might be derived from the word shad, which means breast. And so we have this possibly like AFAB image of God. And then I love that the editors also put in this note that mountains can often evoke breasts. So maybe there's already a sort of linguistically, the yeah. power of mountains, the steadfastness of mountains is also linked to, to breastedness. Um, just a lot. I love it. About. I, and, and the idea, what I loved about it as you were reading that, that hadn't occurred to me when we were talking about it just before we went live is also as God is coming to talk about parenting and lineage, that that might be a really great place for a more feminine image of God, um, a more female embodied image of God that who else would a 99 year old trust, but a God that understands the experiences of, of labor and birth and, um, and parenting in that way. And the correlation of that being mighty as well, that that is an image of might. Yes. Yes, and that, you know, and when we think about the, the role that breasts can play in parenting, it's sustenance. It's, the, it's not just the single act of, of birth, but it's that, that the breasts produce sustenance for the days and weeks and months and years to come. And that, that to me is part of the story too, that this isn't just about you're gonna have a kid. Yeah which is where Abraham and Sarah sort of get caught up. It's like, they're very focused on just like that one birth act that they're waiting for. But this is about, this is a long story that y'all are part of. And that, that breast, that breastedness to me evokes that like, it's not just this one birthing moment that matters to mm -hmm. God. It's this, it's the future. It's the, it's the sustaining the community um, for generations. Right. Which, 
I think it's such an act of parenting, covenanting to not just birth a child, but to, to care for it throughout its life. Um, you know, I mentioned being a new uncle, I'm watching that very close hands and in all that that entails, um, you know, again, it also makes me think, um, does that change how we see manna from heaven um, as, as we're wandering in the wilderness and what, how God might provide sustenance that is, that is nourishing um, as a breasted one? Oh, I love that. I really like that, Alex. Thinking of, yeah, thinking about the manna from heaven as the sort of like God's breast milk. Wow. Yeah. Because I've always loved, I'm so glad you picked this text. I love naming texts throughout the Bible. And as a trans person, really take a lot of sustenance myself from the idea that our relationship with God changes us. Mm -hmm. That, you know, sometimes in the like narratives against trans people, there's this, there's this thing of, you know, trans people shouldn't change what God made perfect, for example, um, if, we're, if we're taking on changing our names, changing our bodies, changing our hormones. Um, and yet over and over again in the Bible, I see instances where God's relationship with us changes us. And so how is my coming out as a trans person or anyone coming out more authentically for who they are a sign of God's relationship with them. It's an act of faith um, to change your name. It's an act of faith to change anything about yourself or living into more deeply who you think God is calling you to be. And this, this text to me um, is one of the many other texts where God changes people's names and particularly not just side characters in the Bible. Like these are founders of, of eventually our faith. Um, And it's, it's claiming a new name in God, being given a new name by God is a very forward-looking act. It is from this day on, you will be Abraham. And this is the name and identity and vocation that I am claiming for myself as I live into my identity in God. Um, yeah. And going back to the thing about manna from heaven and, you know, I would even extend that to all of the feeding miracles in the Bible, you know, also extending it to the feeding of the multitudes, maybe also even extending it to the Eucharist, right? I mean, I mean, how does speaking of God's body as sustenance, as nourishment, how does that change when we, when we think about God as breastfeeding us a lot for me? And, and a lot. And I think to add that layer that you were already bringing into it, I just want to underline of dis disconnecting, like as LGBT, like queer folks, disconnecting what it means to birth and parent from particular gendered norms that our society upholds. So what does it mean for God to be burly and breastfeeding? Mm -hmm. Can God be both? What does it mean for God to be more uh, mothering and mighty? so that we can actually uh, kind of re reinterpret these 
ways of describing God that have been limited by binary thinking. And actually what I love about queer theology overall is that it unlocks our imagination to what it means to be a, a, a transforming parent. Um, and yet noting that Paul also talks about being a mother nursing, like there is imagery very powerfully uh, in the in the scriptures already about God in in more feminine ways in our in our act of developing um, disciples and and in teaching people in the faith that draw from mothering analogies or parenting analogies. Yeah. Well, I know, <laughs> I know I'm thinking about. I saw a thing like on BuzzFeed this week. Um, of it was just like a a montage of images of. Um, trans men and AFAB non-binary people breastfeeding and like talking about the importance for the way that we talk about breastfeeding and having breastfeeding products available to people who aren't cis women um, but like what if that what if we added that into our pocket full of images of God of a trans man breastfeeding um, and what does that tell us about ourselves and certainly what, you know, I think that's so transformative for the way that we view trans people as, you know, in the image of God. But I think what does it tell us about ourselves that we are made in that image as all of us, whether we're trans or not, are made in that image of a God who is both, as you said, burly and breastfeeding, is both almighty and nourishing. And that the mightiness is not opposed to the nourishment, but is in the nourishment. Um, that itself is like, I could spend all week thinking about that. Well, it, it, that to me goes back to even earlier in Genesis in our creation stories of the Adam as the earthling, mm -hmm. uh, as humankind, as a mixture of both the original creation of God being a being without a described gender identity, being a, a mixture of eventually, we, we pull out a rib and, and create a second earthling um, or from the same mud. And to me, that goes straight to the heart of like, what does it mean to receive that kind of trans substantiation from God, excuse me, and um, thus enact part of how we were originally created to be. What if we were originally, I mean, this is very back to Plato um, origin in some ways of like, what if we were originally created to be transformed in our understanding of self vis-a-vis -vis our embodiment? Mm -hmm. And what if we treated that as a sacrament and as uh, like, holy experience of God at those moments of transformation and re-embodiment and, or not re-embodiment, but like transformed embodiment. What if we saw those as moments of divine inbreaking? Yeah. I think that the Bible calls us over and over again to transform our relationship to to static embodiment, that that is not necessarily what God calls 
God's self or us too, that it's in an evolutionary uh, evolving covenant that will continue to grow and shape and change as, as just like a baby is born and grows up, how we understand that child's identities and embodiment are um, ever evolving. And so I think that like, can we look at change and transformation from a place beyond fear, but to the level of sacrament and holy expression of God's and breaking in the world? And then it's, it's all in process. Like this isn't the one moment when God disrupts Abraham and Sarah's lives. This is the one moment when God gives them new names, but this is after God has already said, oh, by the way, please stop living where you and your family have lived for generations and just wander around for a while according to my instructions. And oh, by the way, the like family system that you think you have set up for yourselves, I'm gonna mightily disrupt that. This is neither the first nor the last time and so this is all part of a unfolding process. I think we sometimes like, um, we often think about so many things in both faith and in life as like, what is the moment you were saved? What is the moment you came out? What is the moment you transition? And it's like now, currently, the last 20 years, like um, that all this of week. those yeah, um, just nonstop, a uh, full-time job. Yeah. Um, that all of those, that like those moments of divine inbreaking that we're talking about aren't a bolt of lightning hitting us, you know, in the head and saying like, here's God finding God's self in your life. It's like, it's a thing that unfolds and reveals itself over time. Yeah. Mm. I love that because I think it also gets to the heart of how we understand each other and how, how scary someone else's transformation in our proximity, whether it's we're in relationship with them as a partner, as a parent, as a friend, can feel so threatening in some ways to like destabilizing our understanding of that person. And, um, you know, can kick off a fear response, which you know, I think it's important to notice. Let's not ignore it or downplay it if that's your response. Um, but I think part of what that the conditions that create that fear response is this expectation that, okay, I married you 10 years ago and I want you to be the same person in 30 years that I married 10 years ago, or my body is changing and I don't know what to do when things that I was able to do easily 15 years ago, I no longer can do. And so I think that fear response also comes to ourselves um, as well as, you know, our bodies change throughout space and time. Well, so I was also thinking about how that's true in our interpersonal relationships. That's super, super true on like a societal level too, of like, I was raised with this understanding of how the world should work. And either I'm finding out that that was never true or that is, becoming less true and I'm afraid. And, you know, I think we, we have, I think certainly as a white person who has been doing anti-racism work, I think that's a huge thing that we experience, you know, 
as a white person, I was raised with this particular understanding of like a narrative around race in this country, a narrative around my own whiteness, a narrative around my place in that. And I, as an adult, learning that all of that was a lie perpetuated by a system of evil. And it's so easy to just be like, oh, that's scary. Can, can I just go back and live in that narrative that I had as a child? <laughs> um, and not want to open myself up to how in that disruption, God is, is acting in my life and, and inviting me to repentance and reconciliation and justice. Right. Yeah. It's as if, and, and what I hear you, I, I really appreciate you naming that too, because it feels like sometimes disruption is something that happens to us yeah. or on us or we're a victim of, but what if we think about disruption as the covenant that God covenants to disrupt us and transform us. And when we're in an uncomfortable, I mean, Abram and, and Sarai are not comfortable with this conversation. They're freaking out. And I think that that's an, an important component. Yeah, we, of, of what transformation, disruptive transformation can be is like, it might make us a little uncomfortable. Not that we're not safe, not that we're like in a, in a you know, this is not to, to keep people in the place of being victim or victimized by certain like kinds of disruption, but that can we elevate some levels of disruption and discomfort to a sign and seal of the covenant? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like we're ready to move into our second reading, unless you have, you want to say one more thing? No, I think that's good. Okay, the, I'm, we're, we're, we're percolating in here. Um, so <laughs> yeah, with jazz hands. So I, I want us to move into the second reading. And in that reading, we explore and examine for ourselves how this text calls us to resistance. And we offer two kinds of reading for resistance because we like a nuance. Um, one is, you know, how does this call us to resist systems of oppression? Of oppression? And then where the other level is, is there something that is resistant in us as we listen to this reading that we want to pay attention to and notice? Because I think that's an important site of disruption and investigation and, and potentially even transformation. So I want to read, I'll read the second time, and I'm going to um, try and read from the Common English Bible to see kind of comparison in translation. So I'm going to read Genesis 17, 1 through 7, and then 15 to 16. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai, walk with me and be trustworthy. I will make a covenant between us and I will give you many, many descendants. Abram fell on his face and God said to him, but me, my covenant is with you. You will be the ancestor of many nations. And because I have made you the ancestor of many nations, your name will no longer be Abram, but Abraham. I will make you very fertile. I will produce nations from you and kings will come from you. Come from you. I will set up my covenant with you and your descendants after you in every generation as an enduring covenant. I will be your God and your descendants God after you. God said to Abraham, as for your wife Sarai, you will no longer call her Sarai. Her name will now be Sarah. I will bless 
I will bless her and even give you a son from her. I will bless her so that she will become nations and kings of peoples will come from her. This is the second reading. Daniel, where did you see a call to resistance? So one of the first things I had my own resistance to is I noticed in this reading that God is talking to Abraham about Sarah, that, that God is changing Sarah's name, not talking to her. Um, I think that's a thing to notice. Um, reminds me of um, when God and the two strangers visit Abraham and Sarah at the camp mm -hmm. and the other tent cooking and God is like, oh, by the way, Sarah's gonna have a kid and Sarah laughs and it's this sort of like, I've always read that as her sort of injecting herself in the conversation. Like you can't be over here talking about my reproductive life without me. Um, and we see that here of God and Abraham mm -hmm. um, this is not a nothing about us without us moment for Sarah. Um, and I don't love that. I don't think that speaks, I think that does not speak to the way I really understand um, God. Yeah, yeah. And I noticed what, what I found myself resisting in the, in the um, lectionary, we read one through seven and then a set, a, 1516. We miss in, in those verses, God asking Abraham for a change in his body. Um, yeah. Circumcision becomes part of what it means to be in his covenant. And so I, we miss, I wondered what the lectionary writers were thinking in, in excluding that. Um, is it anti-Semitic as like a sign of Jewish practice? Is it because we don't want to talk about uh, circumcision from the pulpit? Um, what, what is it? And we miss Hagar. There's a, whole, there's a whole person and her child missing from this selection. And I, I think it's hard. It, it complicates this conversation of covenant for me and made me just... I wrote down in my in my little notes like history is written by those who win or by those who who uh, are the dominators, mm -hmm. and I think we miss stories of marginalized people. We miss Sarai's response. We miss the comp like Hagar's like participation in this. Um, in in the next verse, I noticed when I after I stopped. Uh, verse 18, to God, Abraham said, if only you would accept Ishmael. Um, and kind of like saying, Sarai doesn't have to have a son, like we have a son, um, which is not of only me would accept Hagar, but Ishmael, um, Hagar's son. I don't know, it's, it's, I think I loved what you named in the earlier uh, conversation about God disrupts family <laughs> sometimes, like in ways we didn't expect. And I think a, there's a, there could be a queer reading of the Abraham, Abram Hagar conversation, but I think it's, we can't do that reading without acknowledging the power dynamics and what ultimately happens to Hagar in this. Right, right. 
yeah, it'd be lovely to say like, oh, this is a story about a like non-monogamous family and polyamory and family of choice. And then it's like, well, but. Was it choice? Was it choice? And is this the ending we wish for, for our non-monogamous partners? No. Yeah. Um, and all of that being said, well, I think one of the reasons I want to start by naming what I was resistant to is because this passage reminds me of the power of naming and that mm. we, um, when we name things as we understand them, name things for what they are, there's an agency there. And that's why it's problematic for me that Sarah is not part of this conversation. Yeah. And I think that's when we can remind ourselves as people who are called to resistance, that naming what we see, naming evil as evil, naming systems of power for what they are, is um, a way of claiming some agency in our reaction, in our relationship to them. And we can't resist those things that we don't name. You know, it reminds me of Walter Wink. Maybe the second book in the Powers trilogy is naming the powers, but that's mm. part of the work is to is to name what we see and also who we are um, in relation to those powers. Absolutely, yeah. I think that's a really important aspect, to, especially with ref reflecting on naming around resistance. And I also, yeah, add to that like res. Um, allowing for the agency for those to name themselves okay. and to respect that name. I mean, as trans people, <laughs> as, as we are changing names or non-binary folks changing names, you know, we, we have to train people all the time about how to respect someone's name and pronoun, which should not be that hard. And we know there's a lot bound up in it for folks. And so it, it's about practicing and, and respecting someone's autonomy and agency. There's so much bound up in and changing your sentence structure. Um, and I think we have movements and lands of peoples who have named for themselves who they are and the commitments that they have. And, you know, I think those who are um, in powerful and privileged positions can decide or have decided not to respect that name, not to respect that call to action. Um, and, and really just acknowledging histories of that where, where we're learning new names that have been there all the time for things that we tried to change their name for. Right, right. Um, I mentioned at the beginning of this that I spin, which I mean like I make yarn on a spinning wheel for folks who think I'm like on a cycle a lot of times, that's not what I do. Um, and there's a particular technique of making yarn that's called Navajo plying by some people, um, which is kind of complicated and problematic for a couple of reasons. One, um, Diné Navajo people don't actually do it. <laughs> uh, it's vaguely related to like a traditional Diné spinning practice, but it's not actually it. And two, that name Navajo isn't the name of those people for themselves. That's a, a Spanishization of an Apache word for the Diné people. And there's like, in my spinning Facebook groups, at least once a week, there's an argument about whether or not to call that Navajo flying. 
And I, it's and the reason it's such a like tender thing is that it matters what we call things, even if it's just the like particular technique we use to make a three ply yarn. That there's that if we choose to name that not rooted in history, not rooted in practice, not rooted in justice, that's our insistence upon our own. We're we are privileging our own agency over the agency of of other people to your point and like um names are so important i i think this is a real gift that queer people have uh is is we have learned that and understand that uh that power of names and we're so um sensitive to the that our own names and like even that choice of myself to call myself queer in that moment you know um I, I have chosen that word for myself. Um, right. When it makes it very different than when someone calls me like that queer over there. Yeah, yeah, like the naming, not just of my um, personal individual name, but naming of identities, naming of uh, communities and commitments. You know, I think in one name you can summarize what kind of community you're trying to be part of or cultivate or, or move forward. Um, absolutely. And that I think many, many folks have grappled with how do we, how do we, what, what is the collective word we use for us? And, um, and that it does matter exceedingly how we identify folks because parts of who they are can be either lumped together or lopped off, depending on how we use a name for someone. And that's why we advocate often about giving folks the right to tell us their name and that, um, and offering opportunities for that in all kinds of ways, not just your personal um, proper name. Into the, to sort of one of the things we were talking about earlier, one of the things I learned from you in a workshop is that, you know, if we're thinking about church hospitality around names and pronouns is don't ask people to get their pronouns on their like pre-printed name tags, give people the option of having change for that without having to get the whole name tag reprinted. Um, because all of this is in process and all of our identities are, um, things that we need the autonomy to, to, to name for ourselves um, as people made in the image of this um, transforming God. And, and so also allowing for these things not to be static, that it's not like, well, no, you told me right. that your pronouns were he, him. And so I'm gonna use that for the rest of your life. Like, no girl, I'm evolving, I'm changing, I'm growing. Right, right. Yeah. Oh gosh. Thank you for bringing that up because taking you know, it like to the, like the next order of, uh, you know, if you think about like names, I'm thinking of like scientific names, like the genus, I don't really know. Mm -hmm. um, but the next level up of how, how many of our systems are set up for fixed names, mm. not just, not just our name and pronoun, but Again, not allowing for evolution of ourselves, our relationships, our homes, our, you know, like we really, 
we love to label somebody and have that be the all time label. I'm thinking about folks who've experienced incarceration as we're talking about abolition mm-hmm. and how many systems in this country are set up to disenfranchise folks who've experienced incarceration or been incarcerated from getting support, financial, getting jobs, getting housing. I mean, based off a singular label, based off a past version of themselves or an unfair system that incarcerated them, you know, for the exact act of existence. Right, right. And who, who in our society has the power and the agency to change those names that we see as permanent, right? Like who, who is the mediator? Who claims for themselves the mediation of those identities? Um, who can decide that you're no longer an ex-con? Who can decide that you are, um, yeah. And often it's people who are not invested in our communities, who don't have our liberation at heart who um, don't see us as full people. They only see us as those, you know, words on a piece of paper. Yeah, yeah, it's the state. I mean, right. to, to physically change my first name took an ad in the paper to, it took 3000 hoops, it took money, it took going to the court four times it took then going to the driver's you know, DMV with those court ordered documents several times. It took, you know, my spouse changing her last name to McNeil one piece of paper after we got married because it was officially legal in this country. Right. And I, I want changing yourself and your name and your identity to be easeful. Um, but it's interesting, the more bound with the state you are the easier it is to access these kinds of, this kind of agency to, for self-determination. And if you introduce yourself with a name that is not the name on this little plastic thing that was given to you by the government, I implicitly trust the plastic thing more and think, why is he not telling me his real name? Mm-hmm. And so who even, like, who do we trust as the final arbiter of what your name is and what your identity is? Yeah. And, you know, yeah. that says a lot about the way that we, it says a lot about the power of names as parts of our identities, and it says a lot about um, how power is structured in our society. That's right. A hundred percent. And I think our, uh, back to your early, early call to resistance of as we recognize the power of naming, where can we make more room for agency self-determination and calling ourselves to name these, you know, when the system has, has uh, not been serving us uh, and our people um, or others, but that is an act of resistance is naming, <laughs> naming it. Okay, I feel like we can move into our third reading around, um, (laughs) yeah, we're getting there, around um, what vision for the work of abolition that this text offers. And I'd be curious what will come out of that conversation. But Daniel, I'd love to hear the inclusive version again. We need it. (laughs) So this is Genesis 17, one through seven and 15 and 16. 
When Abram was 99 years old, the Holy One appeared and said, I am the Breasted One. Walk in my presence and be blameless. I will make a covenant between you and me and I will increase your numbers exceedingly. Abram fell on his face before God and God said to him, this is my covenant with you. You will be the ancestor of many nations. You are no longer to be called Abram, respected parent, but Abraham, progenitor of a multitude, for you are the progenitor of a multitude of nations. I will make you most fruitful and I will make nations of you and rulers will spring from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come. I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. God continued, as for Sarai, her name will now be Sarah, noble woman. I will bless her and I will give you a child by her. I will bless her and she will become nations. Rulers of peoples will come from her. Amen. Amen. Vision for the work of abolition. You know, one thing that comes to mind for this for me is, I've certainly had this experience, I bet you have too. If you post anything on social media about prison abolition, police abolition, hashtag defund the police, 90% of the time, at least if you're me, you will have probably a white liberal come to you and say, well, I would support this if you just called it some, why do they call it defund the police? Mm -hmm. Couldn't they call it hashtag reform the police? And like, there's so much there. And one of that is going back to that thing that we just talked about of who gets to name this work? Um, and is it possible that the name has an intention and that we really, when we talk about abolishing prisons and abolishing the police and abolishing oppressive systems, that is not a casual name that we have given this work. That work is intentional, that naming is intentional and it was done by people who are deeply embedded in this work, who are deeply affected by this work. And so we, when we resist the name, we are resisting the work. And that has to be um, something that we are mindful of. And the lineage of that work, mm -hmm. that, that defund the police has a lineage of other kinds of attempts to transform, reform, change, you know, resist all kinds of all kinds of things around police, um, and here we are. No, we're to the point of defund. We've tried everything else. Like, can you recognize that? Like, in that, those orders of um, of naming of genus to you know whatever species. Like, no, we're we're down here now. Like, we've tried other things, and we tried the nice way. We tried making cops nicer, etc. Now we're to defund the police because. That's the place of the vision as it has evolved over the past, I don't know, 200 years. If we talk about ab tracing abolition um, in terms of it trying to end enslavement and chattel slavery in the United States um, as one place for abolition to kind of be born within this place. Um, yeah, then like respecting the name is respecting the lineage. And, and the fight over what we call things is always a fight about power and who has the power. Um, whether that's 
what you call me, whether that's what we call our movement, whether it's what we call the, you know, the body of people. Um, you're, when you're fighting, when you're engaged in that fight, what you're doing is trying to claim power for yourself over someone else. And mm-hmm. if you're the person who's, who usually has a lot of power, you need to investigate uh, why this is another place where you think you need all the power. Right. And, and to me, part of that power is the power to not be disturbed by this. Mm-hmm. If we reform the police, I don't have to worry about whether or not police are going to come down my block when someone breaks into my house. I don't have to think about that. And um, yeah, I, I heard in this text, um, speaking of lineage, thinking about abolition as like a progenitor of nations of like this starting this whatever day in the hour, we don't know the day or the hour, but the day and the hour the abolition of prisons or police happens. That begins something that will carry forward and forward and forward and forward. And that part of the work of imagining abolition is the scope of how, like what do we wanna set in place that the world will look like in 200 years? Um, and yet I'm noticing in the text, Abram, Abraham and Sarah like have a hard time seeing beyond their two, you know, Ishmael and eventually Isaac um, and they're like, because I think there's, there's something very true about humans, our vision's limited. We can't see, I don't know what's going to happen in tomorrow, <laughs> let's say, let alone 10 years. Um, and yet, like, I think the covenant with God is f- for these ongoing systems is to, is to develop kind of these like bifocals of trying to work long range, but also seeing close. Yes, and to kind of circle all the way back to the beginning, that that um, sense of abolition is for the future. Abolition is is creative, n- birthing, nourishing work. You know that is inspired by the breasted one for us who are Christians, um, and that. You know, so often the work of abolition is framed by people who are not invested in it as purely negative work of like, all I want to do is just set the prisoners free. Um, right. I don't know where that voice came from, but. <laughs> no, but it was purely negative. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that this text that reminds us that naming is an act of, of claiming a future that changing our name as a society from a carceral, punitive society to a liberatory, communal, nourishing society is a way of living into the future. And it's not just getting rid of things, but it's, it's birthing and nourishing those multitudes of possibilities that are being denied by the carceral state right now. Mm. Mm. I love that. And just underlining naming as an act of a vision, imagination and creation mm-hmm. that you're, you're looking ahead, but you're also bringing intention and 
dreams into the world that, you know, the power of naming is in claiming possibility of what was thought impossible. And I just think about the evolution of the names we have for ourselves, specifically in the queer and trans and non-binary and communities as an evolution of nuance and specificity and beauty um, that, you know, when I, when I was coming up, like the, I didn't know the word for trans, like people. I didn't know there were trans people. And it wasn't until I started meeting people who were trans and starting to claim that identity for themselves. that I was like, oh, that could be me. And what it means to be trans has changed so much, thanks be to God. In the past, I realized I started my name change journey 10 years ago this year, um, 20, 2011. Um, and you know, now we're to the point of having non-binary gender markers on our licenses in some places that we're making more room for people to be. So naming has power because it can begin something that eventually and already is real and tangible and here. Yes. Amen. I love that. And just to underscore, I think that's why we have to talk about abolition. Because for those of us who couldn't have imagined it five years ago, and I count myself as one of those people for whom abolition felt very far away, kind of unconnected to my world, but that's because I was raised as a person of privilege. Um, and now the more we talk about it, the more I'm like, absolutely, this is the right move for us as a world and for what God calls us to in the kingdom of God. Um, and that we make room for that kind of growth when we start the process of naming and sharing. And the other thing I heard in this text was from the inclusive Bible is the way we tell our stories matters. It's not, it's the name creates the possibility for the story and that this Bible uh, version allows us to unlock our imaginations around what this story could mean. That I think is really potent. Or a musical I'm familiar with, who lives, who dies, who tells your story, right? Like, um, yeah, but that is, that's a really, um, intense work and a really powerful work to broaden the stories that we imagine that we can tell and to tell those stories and to listen to the stories that others are telling that we never even thought we'd hear. That's right. That is an act. Yeah, that's an act of abolition too. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, as we're kind of coming to the end of our hour, I'm curious, you know, part of what we ask in this last section is how might we be changed or transformed as a result of this conversation? Um, or otherwise, what will you be taking with you as a result of this reading? I think I'm thinking a lot about birthing and nourishing multitudes of possibilities and, and claiming who God is calling me to be today for the building of the future that I believe God is calling me to, to co-create with, with them and with the world. Mm. I'm someone who I want to think that I'm better at disruption than I am, at being disrupted than I am. And 
this conversation has been such a reminder of seeing disruption as a gift, as an inbreaking of new possibility, the, min the multitudes, as, as you were saying, that instead of, oh, you just destabilized my day, <laughs> or you just destabilized what I was thinking about or working on or believing was true. Um, <clears throat> and my spouse often will ask, well, how could you welcome that like discomfort or feeling? And I think this is a way to start shifting how I welcome disruption, not as a throwing off, but a opening up and um, helping me to see something that before I was over here not seeing. I love that. Yeah. For those in this season of Lent, um, we invite you to consider and continue considering how abolition might be calling you and where it might be calling you, what, what, what needs disrupting, what, meet, what needs tending and mending and creating. So I thank you for joining us. Daniel, I'm so looking forward to the word you will preach based on this text. Again, you can sign up and have Daniel be in your, your worship service. Um, so we'll be back next week with another conversation um, moving, moving this work forward. Thanks all. Thank you.